reached My Fellow Layman with Lena Ajabani, a show for the uninitiated layman hosted by a fellow layman. I cover stories making headlines, I provide context from scratch, and of course, I do it all in layman's terms. Welcome to episode 5, Brexit 2.0. Last we spoke of Brexit, it was May 2019, and Theresa May was the British Prime Minister. I know, that sounds like a bad dad joke. Anyway, it's September, folks, and a lot has happened in just four months. Mrs. May stepped down as Prime Minister. Boris Johnson, whom I feature in this episode's cover arts in the infamously misleading shot of him and French President Macron, Boris's foot in a not-so-dignified position from where Macron is seated. As always, you can check out these images on the show's Instagram, at MyFellowLayman. But like I was saying, Boris Johnson has fulfilled his lifetime ambition of becoming UK Prime Minister, to the chagrin of many, he has recently somewhat controversially decided to suspend parliaments and he intends for Brexit to take place with or without a deal on the official set deadline of October 31st, Halloween. So we're not too far away. That's just a little under two months from now. I'm going to walk you through all these points and then some, but I'll just give you a quick reminder that if you haven't listened to my first episode, Brexit, A Conscious Uncoupling, and if you're not already familiar with the Brexit background, you might want to first listen to that episode where I give full context. I explain the basic geography of the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. I break down the UK Parliament, explaining the role of the Crown, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And I go over how the UK Prime Minister is elected and forms a government. I also recount how the European Union was first established post-World War II and what the EU is today. So I explain the single market and the customs union, the single currency and the Schengen Treaty, the EU budget and all the different EU institutions. And finally, I go over the Brexit referendum and all the important Brexit notions like the withdrawal agreement and the transition period, the backstop and the history of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland from their split up until the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, I explain the political declaration and the deal or no deal scenario. All, I might add, under 30 minutes. So it's quite the abridgment. Now, for those of you who are already caught up with everything I just mentioned, let's pick up where we last left off. We'll start with Theresa May's resignation. Now, while she wasn't able to successfully manage Brexit, she was the second woman to be appointed UK Prime Minister. Before her, the UK saw their first ever elected female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, of the Conservative Party in 1979, and she served until 1990. So that's 11 years, leaving behind her a very impressive legacy to some and to others a quite controversial one. She was dubbed the Iron Lady, and was known for changing the face of Britain by bringing down the back then powerful unions and their constant strikes, which cost the country a lot of money. She was also known for having privatized public sector businesses and, of course, for deregulating the market, primarily the London Stock Exchange, in what was called the Big Bank. 
This meant that a lot of the rules which were previously in place limiting financial incentives like fixed commissions for traders and limited membership in the London Stock Exchange were removed. They were removed overnight, in fact, and many foreign businesses were able to join. Many banks started setting up and trading, and all this activity allowed for the British economy to flourish, to put it lightly, and for the London Stock Exchange to compete with the likes of the New York Stock Exchange. Now, Theresa May, on the other hand, I don't imagine she'll be getting a Hollywood movie made about her like Thatcher did. Well, you never know. Actually, I think there should be a movie about Brexit, at least. But anyway, it's a sore point that May's governance was overshadowed by her inadequate handling of Brexit because, in my humble opinion, there is a need for female leadership role models. But there you have it. She was appointed back in 2016 when then-Prime Minister David Cameron stepped down following the Brexit referendum, and a little under three years later, she announced her resignation as Prime Minister in a tearful and emotional statement she gave just outside Number 10 Downing Street. Now, why did she step down? Well, she was under a lot of pressure to do so. She had managed to negotiate a withdrawal agreement with the EU, but failed to get it approved by Parliament three times. She had even survived a vote of no confidence, but her party, the Conservative Party, was so openly divided. Even when she offered to step down if her bill got support, it was still rejected that third time. And finally, when she proposed a bill where MPs would be able to vote on a second referendum should her deal be passed, you had pro-Brexit conservative MPs calling for her resignation and even a senior minister quitting her own cabinet. So the whole thing was disastrous. And finally, on May 24th, she announced that she would step down as leader of her party on June 7th and continue to serve as prime minister until a new leader was appointed. Now, some say she was assigned a mission impossible. How could she have passed a deal through parliaments when all the diverging demands of parliaments can't possibly be met? Kind of similar to the scenario today. Some people, however, are of the opinion that she knew exactly what she was getting herself into and that it's her fault for not having had cross-party negotiations until very much later on in the game. Then there are those who say she had to insist that Brexit means Brexit and set all these red lines due to the fact that she had originally voted to remain in the EU. So she didn't want to seem biased. Not to mention the incessant pro-Brexit campaign advocated by Boris Johnson himself and the likes of Nigel Farage and the entire Brexiteer bunch, adding another thick layer of pressure, no doubt. Some have even gone as far as to psychoanalyze her and link her strict following of the rules to her upbringing, being the daughter of a vicar. Well, whatever the case she was determined to deliver Brexit, and she insisted that the will of the people must be respected, which according to her was dictated by the results of the vote. When all her attempts failed, however, she said it was time for a new leader who could hopefully deliver Brexit. So what followed was a leadership contest. 
Now, this is not a general election like what I explained back in episode one. This is a leadership contest. So basically, the conservative party, which is already in power, remains in power. But because Theresa May stepped down as leader of the conservative party, her own party will elect a new leader, who ergo becomes the UK's next prime minister. And that's what happened. Conservative MPs put themselves forward as candidates on the condition that they already had at least eight MPs backing them. They campaigned on television and around the country. And then during the first round of voting, the rest of the members of the parliament from the Conservative Party cast their votes. And the candidates with less than 17 votes were eliminated. Then the same went for the second round, except those with less than 33 votes were eliminated. And then the votes continued via eliminating the candidate with the least votes until the final two candidates were reached. So after five voting sessions in total, the final two contenders were Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. Then the vote was turned to the members of the Conservative Party as a whole. So basically, any UK citizen who's an official member of the Conservative Party, and that's 160,000 members, got to vote on who they wanted as prime minister from the final two contenders. And Boris Johnson came out victorious at 66%. All right, now let's move on to Boris Johnson. Obviously, there's no denying he's quite a character. He has a way about him which is satirical and at the same time clever. And so to many, he would appear very charming. To others, less than charming. The bit about him I find most interesting is his schooling and his career path. You see, Boris Johnson and former Prime Minister David Cameron have a history together. What can only be described as frenemies in high school terms, except spanning over about 40 years. They both attended the prestigious all-boys school of Eton College around the same time. Now, just to give you an idea, everyone who's anyone in the upper British class echelon attended Eton College. I'm talking both Prince Harry and Prince William, about 20 Etonians or Eton graduates who became UK prime minister, not to mention a few celebrities like Hugh Laurie and Tom Hiddleton. Following, both men attended Oxford, where they were both members of the Bullingdon Club. And there's a photo of that, actually, I really enjoy. I'm also featuring on the show's Instagram. Now, interestingly so, it was Boris who wound it up as president of the Oxford University Conservative Association, a.k.a. AUKA, which is the breeding ground of future UK members of parliament. And he was also president of the Oxford Union, the oldest debating society with a plethora of weekly guest speakers from Bill Gates to Michael Jackson. So he was quite popular. Meanwhile, Cameron was more studious, you could say. He excelled in PPE, philosophy, politics and economics, while Boris had earned a degree in classics. 
Now, before Bojo went into politics, that's Boris's nickname, by the way, he was a journalist, a very successful one at that. If you measure success with increasing readership, influencing public opinion, and earning handsome salaries in a career which isn't known for its financial incentives. Many would argue, however, that given his track record with newspapers and political campaigns, he's a proponent of fake news and racism. Either way, he went in and out of journalism throughout his career. It's his perpetual fallback, if you will, and he's a published author as well. Fast forward to 2001, both men, Boris Johnson and David Cameron, that is, ended up as conservative MPs. But while Cameron was on his way up, Boris got embroiled in an extramarital love affair and was fired for publicly lying about it. Later on, however, once Cameron became prime minister, he encouraged Boris to become mayor of London a position which Boris took up for two terms and was remembered almost endearingly so for getting stuck on a zip liner while promoting the London Olympics. Next, Boris went back to being an MP, and that's when he eventually decided to advocate for a vote leave, stabbing, for the use of a better word, David Cameron in the back, who was a staunch Remainer. Now, once Cameron resigned as prime minister following the Brexit vote to leave and Theresa May became prime minister, she appointed Boris as foreign secretary, which he eventually stepped down from in protest of her policies. But many would interpret all these moves of his as calculated, simply biding his time with his eyes on number 10 Downing Street. Well, on July 24th, 2019, he did in fact finally get to occupy the coveted post of Prime Minister, and David Cameron ended up congratulating him in a tweet. Now, I'm not sure who gets the upper hand here in this rivalry. I personally think Cameron still comes out looking classier, but that's subjective. Some would say that Cameron's career is terminated and that he's the person to blame for a badly timed Brexit referendum. Anyway, if you fancy more on the rivalry, you can watch the movie documentary When Boris Met Dave. Okay, now let's talk Brexit. What's the deal? So let me set the scene. Theresa May steps down. In comes Boris Johnson. British politics has been dominated by the topic of Brexit for three years and the public is fed up. Parliament is nowhere near reaching a solution and there's a lot of division even within parties. So Boris comes in with the strategy that in order to negotiate the best deal with the EU and put in mind, EU leaders have already made clear that there is not much left to negotiate following their deal with Theresa May, which she couldn't get past Parliament, but that they're still willing to hear the UK's proposal. But Boris says that in order to have some leverage in the Brexit negotiations, it needs to be clear that the UK is willing to walk away from the table if they don't get a good deal. And that means to leave the EU by October 31st with or without a deal, but that the preference is to have a deal and a good one at that. Now, the issue here is that Theresa May's deal has already been rejected by Parliament three times, 
And let's be honest, there's very little time left from now until the October 19th deadline to negotiate a new deal. So he's most likely going to be using Theresa May's deal as a framework and then making a few significant changes, most notably the backstop agreement. And on this, Boris Johnson has never really been clear on what this new proposition of his will be. In the past, he spoke of technological solutions to the border problem between the UK's Northern Ireland, due to leave the EU, and the Republic of Ireland, which is and which will remain within the EU. These solutions, he says, will avoid massive delays as trucks cross the border, but he's left it quite vague. Now, the other day, in an interview with CNN's Christian Amanpour, one of his conservative MPs, John Redwood, explained that, according to him, there is no issue at all when it comes to future trade at the Irish border because the border, as it is today, has goods flowing in and out while both sides have different currencies and value-added sales tax, but the sums are adjusted electronically via computer and bank settlements. So there's no need for physical barriers at the border with people making calculations as trucks turn up. And that the same will go for food exports and imports post-Brexit. So basically, he's saying that all the extra paperwork which will be needed will be done in offices and online, not at the actual border. And that this idea that there's going to be some sort of bottleneck traffic jam at the border is just a fear-mongering tactic for those who don't want to see the UK leave the EU. He also argued that the economy hasn't been affected by the prospect of Brexit and that the pound losing 20% of its value is nothing more than a reaction vis-a-vis the strong dollar with higher interest rates. This, however, doesn't cover the fact that a lot of industries did move their businesses out of the UK due to the uncertainty Brexit created and the prospect of limitations in the freedom of movement of staff, essentially, should there be a hard Brexit. It is the general belief of pro-Brexiteers, however, that even if there is a small economic pushback, it will only be in the early stages and that in the long term, the UK will adapt and be better off. Now, if there's one thing that the majority of parliament can agree upon, it's that they would rather postpone Brexit and ask the EU for an extension than go through with a no-deal Brexit, a.k.a. a hard Brexit. But Boris Johnson, who doesn't want to ask for an extension, decided to put in a request to the Queen to suspend parliament. Now, the actual term is prorogation. Usually, prorogation is quite a standard procedure, where Parliament goes into recess end of September, beginning of October. But the reason this particular Parliament suspension was seen as controversial is because it is believed that Boris Johnson extended this recess by a few days, which effectively adds up to a week, in order to limit Parliament from standing in the way of his strategy. I'll explain. 
Basically, with Boris Johnson as the new prime minister, Parliament officially started on Tuesday, September 3rd. And they were to work on the 3rd, the 4th, the 5th, and then the 9th to the 12th before being suspended between the 13th of September and the 14th of October. But Boris went ahead and called for the suspension of parliaments a little earlier than normal, starting from the 10th of September. To do this, he needed the Queen's approval. Now, the Queen, like I said in episode one, is a figurehead. She doesn't get politically involved. Her assent was automatic, if you will. But this move is being challenged in the courts by some politicians from several parties on the basis that when Boris advised the Queen to suspend Parliament, he did so unlawfully because he didn't divulge his real intentions behind the move. Actually, as I record this episode, already Scottish judges have ruled the propagation unlawful. Now, we have to hear back from the Supreme Court once the government appeals this ruling. But if the Supreme Court doesn't overturn this ruling, this will be a cluster fudge. Boris Johnson will be finished because we're talking about misleading the Queen here. And that's a no-no in the UK. He'll have to step down. So to be seen. I mean, maybe the evidence gathered isn't good enough for the Supreme Court. So let's not jump to conclusions just yet. Now, in face of this early prorogation, the what's called Rebel Alliance, made up of the leading opposition Labour Party, as well as almost two dozen conservative MPs, decided to try and pass a law where they could block a no-deal Brexit in the short time available before prorogation. This was done in stages. Last Tuesday, September 3rd, they voted to take control of the agenda of Parliament, which essentially allowed them the following day to work on pushing forward a bill which would force Boris Johnson to ask the EU for an extension until January 31st, unless by October 19th, either Boris secured a new deal or Parliament voted in favor of a no-deal Brexit. And it worked. The bill ended up receiving royal assent. Now, if you're Boris Johnson, you're pissed. First of all, he lost his majority. He had a tiny majority in Parliament by one MP, but then that MP defected and joined the Liberal Democrats' party, making him lose his majority. And to make matters worse, 21 other conservative MPs didn't switch parties, but they also went against his strategy and voted for this anti-no-deal Brexit bill. So in response, he fired these rebel MPs from the conservative party. So they're still MPs, but they're independent now. And this is called the stripping of the whip, which is a very barbaric wording, right? But it was a drastic measure by Boris. Even his brother, Joe Johnson, who's a conservative MP or was a conservative MP, following this, quit the party. But Boris stuck to his guns and he called for a general election to take place on October 15th. Now, what he's been trying to do here is assume the position of the people's hero the one who will deliver the will of the people against a seemingly defiant parliament. Because you see, if he got an election before the 31st of October, 
he can make the argument that he is delivering the will of the people without looking incompetent or suffering the real economic consequences from hard Brexit fallout, which otherwise might galvanize voters into rejecting his government. For example, if there were to be long queues and shortages of supplies like some experts are predicting. Also, if he managed to gain a strong majority in Parliament following an election, he might have been able to push through another bill to retract the anti-no-deal Brexit bill. But his request for an early election was denied. You see, in order for the government to enact a snap election, it must be approved by a two-third majority in Parliament, according to the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. So essentially, he'll need the Labour Party to be on board. But the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, who had kind of promised that he would back a general election if the anti-no-deal Brexit bill is passed, still didn't agree to support a general election after the bill was passed, and nor did MPs. Now, as for Boris, even though said bill is now law, he declared that he will still not be asking the EU for another extension. I believe his exact words were, I'd rather be dead in a ditch. Now, Johnson tried calling for a snap election again, but that was once again rejected. And what we're now looking at is a deadlock in the House. So basically, there seems to be no solution. If you're confused, don't worry. It's all speculation at this point. Everyone is confused. The one thing that most experts do seem to all agree upon, however, is that a general election is bound to happen eventually. How or when is still up in the air. But now that Parliament is officially suspended, it's most likely going to happen after October 31st. So here are the final options, and I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Okay, whip out your calendars and mark down October 13th. That's the last day of the prorogation. Then on October 14th, you have the Queen's speech where she's going to outline the agenda of the new government. And on the 17th, you have the EU leaders meeting for their council summit. And Boris is also supposed to meet with them and propose a new deal. Now, either Boris scores a new deal before October 19th, and if he does, he then either gets it approved by Parliament, in which case Brexit takes place with a deal, a very unlikely scenario because MPs seem to have it out for Boris, in which case, if his deal gets rejected or if he doesn't come up with a deal at all, Boris will refuse to ask for an extension regardless of the law, and he will no doubt face legal issues. And the opposition could also call for a vote of no confidence, in which case, if the government wins, Boris will simply defy the law and Brexit will most likely take place sans a deal, which seems incredible. But again, these are the extraordinary Brexit standards. But if the government loses, then either a new government is formed by the main opposition, unless they don't manage to form one because that too has a time limit, then a general election is held. So it's not looking too good for Boris Johnson. Did he overplay his role perhaps, step on too many toes maybe, 
Or will the people still see him as the chosen one? Stay tuned. And I will most likely record another Europe episode in the near future to follow up with our earlier European elections episode. And we'll see if Europe is still home to the UK. But for now, thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Lina Ajabani, coming to you from Paris and so happy to be back from my August hiatus. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review me on Apple Podcasts so that other people can discover the show and tell your friends too. Word of mouth is apparently the most effective way. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of My Fellow Layman available wherever you download your podcasts or on air in Paris on WRP. That's World Radio Paris. Can you make a promise today to the British public that you will not go back to Brussels and ask for another delayed Brexit? Yes. And, sorry, and would you I'd rather... I'd rather be dead in a ditch. So you would resign first, Prime Minister, rather than go and ask for that delay? I, I, look, I just don't... I, I really... It costs a billion pounds a month. It achieves absolutely nothing. What on earth is the point of a further delay? I think it's, it's, it's totally, totally pointless.